Amen. If you would take your Bibles, open them up to 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. We'll be looking at uh, verses 5 through... First uh, John ch- verse 5 through 2, 2 actually. We're going to begin by reading 5 through 10. So that's where we'll begin this morning. So I want to start out with this question for you. Whatever became of sin? Whatever became of sin? The, frame, uh, the famed psychologist Carl Menninger posed this question to the world actually 47 years ago. I want you to think about that. 47 years ago, he wrote this. I want you to think about it. The word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous word, a serious word. It described a central point in every civilized human being's life plan and lifestyle. But the word went away. It has almost disappeared. The word along with the notion. Why? Doesn't anyone sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? As a medical professional, manager warned that should the perception of sin become eliminated from open cultural discourse, any hope or thought of a moral society would inevitably vanish. While we would not agree with every aspect or assertion of remedies offered by manager, he has observed Something very keenly, hasn't he? He's observed something very interesting. As a matter of fact, I have found, I've been using um, within my, uh, my Mac, I've been using the voice uh, kind of recognition tools a little bit more, and I'll talk to uh, my computer and everything, and every time I say sin, it, it writes the word send. And I've tried to say it in many different ways, Conrad, like 11 you know, I've tried to say it many different ways, and it still will write it as sinned. And I have to correct it, drives me nuts. So even the Mac has disappeared from Mac, hasn't it? Our culture, we see it there, we, we kind of see the idea there. Uh, but sadly, many who profess to be Christians are, are mixed up and unsure about this word sin. So as we come to our text today, John, St. John, is going to offer us some truth about the issues of sin. Uh, Much of what he writes in this letter is to contradict false teachers who were unsettling the original readers of this epistle. In this text, he highlights three claims made by these teachers to help the church understand sin and, and just those things in this world. So as we go through them, what you will see is, is there is nothing new under the sun. There's not. It will help us too. It will set the record straight for us in terms of how we need to view sin in light of these teachers. And it will communicate to us the beauty and the glory of the gospel all the more. So let's pray as we think about this text. And, um, and as we dive in, let's have open and gracious hearts to hear from the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a light unto our path. 
And I ask that you would use it this morning to penetrate the darkness of our own hearts. Lord, show us. Show us the reality of our own sin and the beauty of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. So hear what John has to say. 1 John uh, chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you. That God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar. And His Word is not in us. This is the reading of God's Holy Word. And what we see in this passage is that God Himself defines the standard of human morality and spirituality that is necessary in order to have fellowship with Him. With the understanding that sin is the opposite and violation of that standard, which makes fellowship with God possible. So He is showing us these are the things that are, that are contrary to me and if you walk in these things, in this darkness, you cannot have fellowship with me. So the, today, as we think about that, John is going to help us to consider the biblical view of sin and its remedy that we may truly have fellowship with the Lord and one another. And, and the first thing we're going to look at is this. It all begins with God is the light. That's where it begins. God is the light. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. A question I would have for you is how do people generally think of God when it comes to themselves and brokenness and the sin of the world? I think typically and broadly speaking, and, that, and I say this broadly speaking, there's two general views of God in our culture and even in the church. One view would see Him as a vengeful, wrathful God, which may be nuanced somewhere between inspectors of air and the uptight, busy auto repair man who has no time for us because he's too stacked up. We look at Him like that. He's, he's, he's coming after us with His, with his law. He, he is about the law. Or He's just so angry at us. He just has no time for us. And so... What do I have to do with Him? On the other hand, I think people view God to be a loving God. Perhaps a laid-back God. Uh, the nuance is here somewhere between a cosmic party God. Maybe a God who lives on Maui and it's just, just hanging loose and He's hanging out and it's all good, man. Or, or somewhere on the beaches of California. He wants us to join the party and have a good time because, hey, I love you, it's alright, it's all good. Or maybe we look at him somewhere in the nuance of a grandfatherly figure who always overlooks our sins and issues. The real question is, however, is how does God reveal himself to us in light of our sin? How does he do that? 
When it comes to the fundamental reality of who we are as human beings, in the situation we find ourselves in, in this world, it's important that we always, always, always begin with God. Especially the essence of God and how He reveals Himself to us. So let me give you an example of this, okay? Peter Barnes frames it this way. Many professing evangelicals today think that the first thing they need to tell the world about God is that His very nature is love. That He loves everybody equally and that we need to respond to that love by inviting Jesus into our hearts. However, he continues, soothing as that may be, it's not John's message. Nor is it the message of the Bible. John's first assertion is God is light. Now later in chapter 4, he'll say God is love. But notice where he begins. God is light. So why? Why does John bring the message from Christ to us? Notice that. It's a message from Christ here to us that God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. I believe it is simply because he wants us to understand something significant of who God is which will help us in our understanding of where we are in this world in terms of sin. So John's assertion that God is light sets up automatically this natural contrast with darkness. The metaphoric contrast actually flows throughout the Scriptures from beginning to end, and it's helpful to understand several aspects here of this contrast. First, for John to say that God is light, he is saying that God is marked by moral purity. Moral purity. There is no moral imperfection in him. He is perfect in holiness. You see this in in the book of Isaiah in chapter 6. We know it well, don't we? In Isaiah 6, and think about it this way, he's in a vision. He's not like really in God's presence here. Because he'd be fried. I mean, God warned us about that. He warned Moses about that. So here he is in a vision, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up, and what does he do? He falls on his knees and he cries out, do you remember? Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and notice what he says there, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have done what they've seen, the King of glory, the Lord of hosts. So here we see, he sees the moral purity of God and how unholy he is. So that's the first thing about God is light that we need to understand. That's the first aspect. Secondly, for John to say that God is light, he is saying that he is perfectly steadfast in his being. We read again and again and again, especially in the Psalms, Um, That his love is steadfast. His love is steadfast. What what is he trying to get across there? That his love endures. It's not like our love. That is fickle. His love endures. But I'll ask you this question. Is not his, are not his other attributes not just as steadfast? Of course they are. He is steadfast as well in his wisdom. 
in his power, in his justice, in his goodness, in his mercy, and in his truth, just to name a few of his attributes. And I think this may be, in my mind as I've studied this, this one is, is really the key to the whole thing here. I think when John is saying that, 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 that God is light, he is speaking not only of his moral purity, but strongly of this one to show that he, is, that he wants to leave nothing uncertain about the character of God and his steadfastness to us. He is communicating to us that God is perfect. Immutably perfect. Do you see how as we look at him and see that he is light? So what that means is, is that in his love, he is, he is steadfast in his love. He is perfect in his love. At the same time, he is just. He is perfect in his justice. As I was reading not too long ago, and uh, one of the books that, that I read, all these books all the time, and one of the books that I was reading, and the guy said, isn't God just as glorified in His justice as He is in His love? That's what he's getting to here. That's what he's getting to. Nothing is unclear. John wants to say, nothing is unclear about Him in this sense. On the other hand, when it comes to darkness, nothing's really clear. Finally, so we see that he is, he is morally pure. We see that he is steadfast in his, in his love and in his justice and his attributes. And finally here, John, for us to understand this, John would say that God is light. And what he's, what he's pointing out to also here is his incomparable beauty. He wants us to gaze upon his beauty. The psalmist says in Psalm 76, 4, that God is radiant with life. Radiant with light. Uh, some translations have the word here for this as resplendent. So there's just, it just brings in a new nuance there. It's resplendent. It's pure light. The Net Bible translates it, translates it you shine brightly. And what's interesting here about this psalm is, is what, what the psalmist is doing. Is he's, he's contrasting the glory and beauty of God with that of the mountains and their majesty. So think about standing in Colorado in, one of the, in front of one of those blue lakes with those trees and the blue sky behind you. And you're like, this is unreal beautiful. And what the psalmist is saying is, no, look at God. You want to see beauty. Look at God. You get the idea here, don't you? No one sits in the dark and says, wow, this is beautiful. Nobody does that, do they? No. Maybe you've been on a plane. I know I've traveled at night quite often. And as I'm flying through the sky, you know, it's all dark except for you know, the cabin they even have turned down low. And, and you, if you try to look outside, you can't see a thing, you know, especially if it's, you know, a really dark night and cloudy and, and that type of thing. And, and um, you, it's even difficult to kind of see the stars. And as you're coming down, you might see, like, way out in the distance, this beautiful city lit up. And, and seriously, if you've ever done that, you just want to look at it. It's just beautiful. I wonder what this looks like. I still remember flying into Dallas my first time. It was evening, and Chris and I were flying together, and we went around, and there the city is below us. And I was like, wow, 
wow, it's just so beautiful. Or, or maybe you, um, you think about Christmas lights. You know, all of a sudden it's drab and it's, 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 you know, now it's even, what, October? I mean, people are just what they are, but it's October, it's going into November, and it's just looking all drab and everything, and then all of a sudden, poof, there's lights everywhere. And they just sing, really, to the glory of God. They light up the place. And then, after Christmas, you know, they start slowly coming down, and you're like, oh, it's kind of turning into just old, same old, same old again. Maybe you have looked at the stars at night. You've looked at the fire. Looked at a fire in the darkness of a forest. As beautiful as created light can be, there is nothing in comparison to the glorious and wondrous beauty of God who is light. Now the important thing to grasp here as we think about God as light is that in these three aspects of God's lightness, moral purity, steadfast in essence, and in beauty, the light cannot coexist with the darkness. We know that just by when we walk in a room and you turn on the light, poof, darkness and light do not coexist together. What we will consider in light, no pun intended, of this truth is false teaching that prevails in our day as well as that did in John's day. So as we're going through this, as we look at this sin, these sin issues, I want you to be thinking the whole time about the glory of God, the light of God, the beauty of God, the steadfastness of God, the moral purity of God. So let's go through our second point. Let's get to what these people say. What sin really looks like with the light turned on. Three false views of understanding sin. Verses 6-10. through 10. The first false view that John con, uh, confronts here in verse 6 states, he states it this way. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. That is, it's, it's, it's possible to have fellowship with God, to know Him as Savior and Lord, to continue habitually walking in darkness, right? No, he says, no. Don't believe it. That's what the false teachers are saying, but don't believe it. It's not true, nor is it safe. The issue John is denouncing is that of refusing to accept the light God has given in the Revelation of the word, but instead preferring the darkness of one's own way. If you refuse to set your life in harmony with God's will, you can't claim to have fellowship with Him. Or as John Stott says, religion without moral morality is illusion. On the contrary, on the contrary, we are to be walking in the light. Not walking in our own way, but walking in the light. In the New Testament, walking in the light is directly related to following Jesus. He said, I am the light of the world. And he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And so to walk is to live one's life in the direction of, of, of God by following the Son. The word indicates progress. Walking is related to growth. It is taking steps toward Christian, biblical, Christ-centered, value-minded maturity. Look, Jesus came to cleanse us 
from our sins and to deliver us from our sins, not to leave us contentedly in them. And I know for sure that, that in, and I, I won't say the culture, I'll say the Christian culture communicates so often the opposite of this. It says, just come as you are. Just come as you are. But Jesus never tells us He's going to leave us where we are. As a matter of fact, from everything we read in this passage, He can't. It's impossible for Him to do that. And so the question is, for us, is this. Will we live our lives resolved towards God? We talk about reading the Scriptures. We talk about... Uh, getting God's Word in our heart, as we do that, that light exposes our hearts. It points us to Him. It points us to His redemption. It points us to His glory and His beauty. And so will we be resolved to live towards God? Is your desire to grow in grace? Do you long to be godly and to be holy? Are you unhappy in your sin because you know that it is displeasing to God and it destroys fellowship with Him and with others? Is sin something that you cannot rest in? That you cannot be satisfied in? But you long to please Him in the way you live. This is not sinless perfection. It is walking in the light. It's being Godward. It's being God-focused. Sometimes it's about a correction. Why? Because, just admit it, sometimes we can't even see the sin in our own hearts. Maybe a brother or sister points it out to us. Maybe we're, in a, we're reading a book or we're having a quiet time or, or something of that nature and all of a sudden we're like, that's a really deep sin. What is made clear here in verse 7 is that if we walk in the light, God has made provision to purify us from whatever sin would otherwise damage our fellowship with Him or with one another. That we can trust in. That we can hope in. The second view that John confronts is on the other side of the perspective. Look at verse 8. In verse 8, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You know, this is, I want you to think about this is truly astonishing. These false teachers were saying that they didn't even have any sin. Interestingly, the Greeks suggest here an active rejection of the truth rather than just a simple misconception. In other words, they were really pressing this issue. Either way, Uh, what they were doing is is that they were denying that they were born with sinful natures. Hey, you don't have a sinful nature. You weren't born that way. So get over it. Just live your life. Or they were saying that because of faith, that sinful nature has totally been eradicated. You don't have to worry about it anymore. We don't know which he's arguing against, but whatever the case may be, Scripture is contrary on both of these issues. If you go back to Psalm 51, what does David say? He notes that we were born in this world with sinful natures. And even a child of God who is loved and forgiven needs help of the Holy Spirit daily to put the deeds, or I should say the misdeeds of the body to death. That's noted in Romans 8.13. True believers are set free from the dominion and the domination of sin, but not its influence. Not its influence. 
Sin is persistent. It's clingy. It's like the Terminator. It will come after you. So know that. that We can never say that, hey, I don't have a sin nature. We can't say that. Finally, the the third false claim here in verse 10 is, if we say we have not sinned, and we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. These false teachers could say that sin would indeed break fellowship with God if we did sin. They could even say that sin exists in our nature. But what they would deny, what these false teachers would deny is, that they had practiced sin. They would deny that. We haven't done it because we're beyond it. We're way beyond that now. John Stott says this, he says, This is the most blatant of the three denials. The heretics maintain that they are superior, um, that their superior enlightenment rendered them incapable of sinning. To say that we have not sinned is neither just to tell a deliberate lie nor to be deluded, but actually to accuse God of lying, to make Him out to be a liar, and to reveal clearly that His Word has no place in our lives. And so what John does in the letter here is he makes it clear of his assessment of the wrong views of the false teachers concerning sin. He points out the truthful, horrible reality that the outbreak of our sinful behavior comes about by the origin of our nature. And it has definite consequences in preventing us from having true fellowship with God. And so I'll ask you, do you know your sin? Do you know your sin? I, I said a few minutes ago that, um, that, that we need to, to consider this on a deeper level. We were talking about this in Sunday school as well. That we need to sit before the Lord uh, for extended times, we need to be in His Word. We need to, to be thinking about, even as the preach Word comes about, uh, how we may sin against the Lord. I think He would have us to know that, to have us to know that our hearts are bent that way. That when, uh, when we um, uh, may explode in anger, it could be very sinful, but as, as I've used this illustration before, as David Pallison had said, he came in from work, it was a long day, it was a hard day, and, and he's tired and he lays down on the couch and, his, and he picked up his newspaper and he's reading it, and his wife comes and says, you know, at least once I wish you would come and ask me if I need help. And he says, I moved my newspaper an inch. And that was just the greatest sin if I would have stood up and cursed her out. Because in my heart, that's exactly what I meant to do. That's how the Lord wants us to see sin. He wants us to realize how deep it is. He wants us to realize how tenacious it is. But He doesn't leave us there. He does not want us to. He wants us to recognize it for what it is. He wants us to see that. But He does not Leave us there. What are we to do about sin? I'm telling you, if, if, if we really looked at it and, and John didn't move us on in this passage, it would be real easy to jump on one of these false narratives. It would be real easy to say, yeah, that's what I believe in. Yeah, that's what I hold to. 
Yeah, that's what I think. I don't have a sinful nature. It doesn't really impact anything. It's not a big deal. But because He doesn't leave us there, we have hope. We have a greater truth here before us. So let's look at number three. What sinners like us are to do with sin? What are we to do with it? Well, how, how does God remedy sin? Well, he tells us in, in trusting John's assessment, once we understand that we, we, we're not dominated by sin, you know, it has no longer dominion in us as believers, but it still is tenacious, it's still after us. If we trust in that assessment, we look in, at the condition in verse 9, and what we see here is that the Christian is to confess their sins before their holy God. We, too are, we are to agree with God that our sins are ugly, that they're wicked, that they're destructive. They destroy us, they destroy those around us. And then we rejoice in the knowledge that He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice the deeper level encouragement here. He says, when you do that, when you come to Him, when you confess your sin, He is faithful and just. He's leaning really heavily here on the covenantal faithfulness of God that we see in the Old Testament promises. God is faithful to forgive you. He's trustworthy. He is loyal. Which means we may not only trust Him, but go boldly to Him. Seeking forgiveness when we do sin. He's opening the door. Come, be bold and say, I trust in you, my mighty God. You have made these promises to me. And then also here we see in His justice. It sounds odd, doesn't it? Because we would normally think that in His justice He would be relating to judgment. But what he means here is, is that he's talking about his justice and his justness. That he is righteous to forgive. But that is the question, isn't it? How is he righteous to forgive? How can it be? How can a God who is pure light, who is, who is pure and perfect and beautiful, be just to forgive us of our sins? That's where we run into chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 with me. First two verses. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So as he is getting into verse 10 here, as he says, um, if we say that we have not sinned and we make him a liar and his word is not in us, it's almost like he pauses for a moment there. He pauses because it's serious and he brings the and it brings him to address the readers as his faithful children. And it leads him to explain to them that while he wants them not to sin, and I think this really means by the language here, period, he does not want us to sin ever, period. What he's doing is he's holding out a balance of, of perfection. 
Do not sin. Go and sin no more, as Jesus said. And the reality that we do sin. That's the balance here. We have an obligation to be righteous. Do not sin. But we don't have the ability. Therefore, what He wants to do is to make His readers assured that if they do sin, they can look to Jesus. If we do sin. Notice He doesn't say when. But if you do sin, that it just points us again. He wants us to remind, be reminded of that perfection, that obligation. If we do sin, we can look to Jesus. Christ is righteous. For in Him there is no sin. Christ's life was characterized by perfect obedience to the Father. We cannot plead our own righteousness before a holy God. But we can plead the righteousness of Christ Jesus who fulfilled the law for us. You see, God just hasn't swept our sins you know, under the rug. He's not just some grandfatherly figure that overlooks it all and says, oh well, you can't help yourself. It's okay. I forgive you. He doesn't do that. They're too serious for that. It's infinitely serious. And so therefore, He has dealt with our sins through the punishment of our sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at verse 2. Christ is the propitiation of our sins. Propitiation, it's a big word, isn't it? But let me make it simple for you. It just means that He has dealt with our sins through the punishment for our sins upon the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. This word carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction toward God. Propitiation is a, a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of an offended person and being reconciled to him. It's another false teaching today that you will hear sometimes or read about sometimes. That how could God be a child abuser? ridiculous because Jesus is God you see and he came in the flesh and he came to give his life for us that we could be reconciled to him at Calvary Christ drank until he had emptied the cup of God's righteous fury against sinners specifically you and me, and us. God's divine anger was turned upon His beloved Son. This is the wonder of the cross. Think about it. It's the wonder of the cross where God's love and His righteousness are brought together in the perfection of Christ's sacrifice for us. Again, light! Light! Not only this, but after Christ died and He ascended up into heaven, you know, the cross and the resurrection go together. So He resurrected from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And so what we see here that John tells us is that He is sitting at God's right hand. And He is our advocate. That means He's our legal defender. 
It's not like the shenanigans that go on today in the legal system. This is the holy court people. And so Jesus is our defender. And in our defense, He doesn't say, Oh man, oh man, Mia, you're so good. You're awesome. I love Mia. Mia. Mia's got all these things. She's awesome. Chris, you're a wonderful man. Oh, you work so hard. You're a great dad, great husband. Oh, he's so good. He's so good. He can't claim any of that, can he? Because we know we fail, right? So what Christ, what Christ does is He pleads on His own sacrifice for our sins. His sacrifice was once and for all. And not only was it once and for all, it was more than sufficient. An infinite God dying for our infinite sins. So understanding, so to just kind of focus us again, understanding that we are sinners by nature, uh, that we are and that we are sinners by conduct. And, and what we do. This brings us to the place of needing the mercy of the gospel. The gospel reveals God's remedy. That based on Christ's propitiatory uh, death on the cross. And with His advocacy before the throne of God. We may come and confess our sins on the basis of His righteousness and His righteousness alone. So we look completely and totally to Christ. So when it comes to the confusion of this world, and even in our own hearts, Malcolm Mulgridge said this, I have consciously looked far and wide, inside and outside my own head and heart, and I have found nothing other than this man and his words which offer any answer to the dilemmas of this tragic, troubled time. If His light has gone out, then as far as I'm concerned, there is no light. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the light has not gone out. It still shines bright. It has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So as they would say, let's fly to it. Let's fly to Him. And let us take it to the world. For He alone is the light of the world. And the world so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would Encourage us in our spirits now with this truth. That we would be reminded uh, the Puritan writer who said, look upon, as we look upon our own sin, let us gaze at Christ 10,000 times. I do think scripturally it's important that we understand sin, that we understand what it is and what it isn't and how it works and how it doesn't work. That we really and truly take the time to look into our own hearts. We have an opportunity each week in our service. 
to think about what we have done during the week and how it may be repulsive to you. How it may, may cause you shame. And yet, Lord, as we do that, we need to turn and look at Christ 10,000 times. We may need to go correct a wrong. We may need to go ask for forgiveness. We may need to change our ways. But Lord, as we do that, we look at Christ 10,000, 10,000 more times. For He is the light and the glory of this world. He is our Savior. Our Lord and our King. Oh Jesus, receive us and help us. We pray with, with that Roman soldier. Lord, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.